Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Strategist, Jay Carson. We begin the show with the tragic events in Charlottesville, Virginia, where white nationalists and other racist hate groups came together in a so-called Unite the Right rally centered around opposition to the planned removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. There were numerous clashes between protesters and counter-protesters, with by far the most horrific being a young white man deliberately ramming his vehicle into counter-protesters, resulting in one death and 19 injuries. President Trump condemned the violence, but made no specific mention of white nationalists or other hate groups, instead pointedly saying that there was violence on many sides. Later on Saturday, the Justice Department announced that it would be starting a civil rights investigation into the circumstances of the deadly car ramming. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on this, both, I guess, what happened and also how President Trump and his administration have responded? Well, you know, as far as the first of all, what what happened, obviously, this is it's uh, it's a tragedy. It is. uh, you know, to, to say that this kind of stuff goes on uh, in in our country in 2017 uh, is really sort of a, a ought to be a source of embarrassment for for our nation, uh, and especially I, I, I'm going to make a call out to to any I mean conservatives who who listen to this and who listen to to the show, uh, and and say, look, this this is obviously not what uh, and mainline conservatism Republican thought stands for. Uh, and there was a time uh, when the, the uh, conservative movement took some really pretty strong steps to uh, get this this element uh, out and away from from any sort of um, respectable public uh, public debate uh, and treat them as the, the you know pariahs that they they ought to be. Um, and I think the time to come has come for that again. And, um, you know, in terms of Trump's remarks, you know, look, it, it this is Trump being Trump. Uh, it, it's almost like he start, he starts off the, the statement as, as he ought to, if we condemn this in the, the harshest terms and this is terrible and we, we won't accept bigotry. And, and then he throws in the, by a lot of people and, and just sort of makes it completely fuzzy. I, I think there's plenty of time to argue about, um, and I'm, I'm a big, you know, arguer about this, uh, you know, political correctness, black lives matter, uh, is that helpful, you know, to the, our, our larger debate. Uh, but when you have an instance of this, where, where it is, uh, uh, violence by a hate group, uh, perpetrated against, uh, uh, others, I think you, you just have to call it what it is and call out that, uh, that th- those, those groups by name. Uh, I don't think this is an instance where you can can waffle uh, and say, well, you know, a little both sides. Come on. Everybody's uh, kind of at fault. Uh, I, I don't think that's acceptable here. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, with the Justice Department investigation, Jeff Sessions will step up uh, and, and really lower the, the hammer on, uh, you know, and at this, at this point, there's one suspect uh, and it's not clear whether he acted in concert with anyone else. Uh, but um, you know, look at the the group as a whole. If its intent was not simply to demonstrate a, a point of view, which is it's constitutionally protected, even though we we may find that point of view abhorrent, uh, 
but if their goal was to incite violence, incite a riot, uh, which which is typically the the, the goal of, of these these groups. Yeah, you know, I I think really President uh, Trump, who you know, it's you said Trump being Trump, but Trump being Trump is just letting loose and sort of calling people out by name sometimes. And here, all of a sudden, he becomes Trump the even-handed, Trump the waffler, and that that just sits wrong with a lot of people, and not just on the left. I mean, Orrin Hatch, who's no uh, who's no oh yeah yeah, you know, <laughs> says we should call evil by its name. You know, there were a number of Republicans who said, listen, you have to call this what it is, and especially coming from a man, Donald Trump, who mocked President Obama for his weakness and not calling Islamic terrorism. Islamic terrorism, all of a sudden he can't call out white nationalists and neo-Nazis. I mean, my God, if there's ever one group that you should be able to call out. Well, that's, what just, that's what I was just going to say. In some ways, and and please, this isn't to diminish uh, what's happened, uh, but when, when something like this does happen, as a president, you know, speaking from a purely Machiavellian sort of viewpoint, political viewpoint, it, it's something of a gift because this is a how can you how can you screw this up? Um, like you said, how can how can you not uh, you know condemn neo Nazis? I mean, it's sort of the that's the that that's sort of the big you know fastball right down the middle of the plate, and and uh, and he botched it, and that's you know again, just and yet it just seems odd that he would given his personality, that he would botch that, which makes a lot of people say, well, what's going on here? We got the whole Steve Bannon alt-right sort of fuzzy, hazy connection some people have suggested. And is he just uncomfortable calling out people who are, whether he likes it or not, part of his base? I mean, that's a, I think it's at least a reasonable question to raise. Yeah, although, I mean, I, I think you may be you know, you, you may be assuming he's giving this more thought than he's, he's giving it. Um, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but then again, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think he, he, you know, said, okay, I'm going to say something. I guess I need to condemn this, but I don't want to be too harsh because I don't want to offend my base or, or something like that. I think it's, uh, it was just him off the cuff and, and, uh, again, not being thoughtful where, whereas if you took, I mean, just a minute, uh, and had someone else say, you know, listen, Mr. President, this is, this is a, a moment where uh, uh, he he had the the opportunity to sort of rise above uh, what he has been, um, and and he 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 doesn't he doesn't do it, and that's that's disappointing. So I I don't see it as much as as um, I know probably liberals will will see that as there was some sort of you know a dog whistle under underneath there that is is sort of a nod and a wink. Uh, I, I don't think that's that's the case. I think it's just him being off the cuff and not thinking. Uh, what he's saying, and and uh, uh, again, if there if there's there's anything that good that comes out of it, it is the the ability that uh, uh, we can stand up to say this is uh, this is not what uh, what America stands for. This is not what uh, anyone on on the right stands for or should tolerate. You know, before we move on. Jay, I have a few more things to say on this. But before we do, I want to thank our first sponsor today, Blue Bottle Coffee. You know, I I love coffee and not just coffee in general. I can't drink that supermarket pre-ground, comes in that huge canister sort of stuff. It tastes like rancid brown water to me. Well, I, I don't know if water can be rancid, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, I'm a total coffee snob. And so... 
when I tell you that blue bottle coffee is seriously good stuff, I am speaking from a coffee snob perspective. Uh, you know, when I got my first order, that roasted on date was two days before, which is really impressive and extremely important because the closer to roasting time you can get, the better and fresher your coffee is going to taste. And I thought it tasted exceptional. I don't ever recall actually having a better cup of light roast coffee. And Jay, I understand you recently tried blue bottle coffee too. What did you think? I did, and it is uh, it is fantastic. This is something we can absolutely agree on. Um, uh, it's it's great to see a, a product. And again, I, my roasted on date was uh, I think a day. Uh, mine was even even closer to the roasted on date than yours. Um, after uh, after I received it or before I received it. Uh, but but again, uh, uh, fantastic stuff, and uh, encourage all our listeners. Uh, to try it. Yeah. And Blue Bottle has something for uh, whatever your coffee palette is. You know, if you like that light, bright, sharp kind I'm, of I'm stuff. I'm more of a dark roast guy. Yeah, me but. too. And and they've got, they've got that too. These the deep kind of uh, espresso kind of hearty sort of things. And, and another big plus for me has to do with sustainability. Blue Bottle works directly with farmers all over the world to source the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can find. Big deal for me. Uh, and Blue Bottle has a great deal for politics, guys, listeners. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG for $10 off. And everyone say it with me now one more time, bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. Okay. Uh, you know, before we get off of the, the, the Charlottesville story, I, you know, we, I did want to say one thing. I disagree with you a little bit about the, uh, about the, uh, whether or not there's a dog whistle kind of thing. I think there's some of that there, but you know, anyway, we've talked about this before in the past and other things. The other thing I want to talk about at least a little bit address is the motives of these protesters. So what, what, why do you think these people are, are, are getting together and doing this? I mean, it's obviously more it's than just about Robert E. Lee. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's more than about Robert E. Lee. It's, it's about uh, Robert E. Lee is sort of the hook for them to seize a little bit of a, a political moment. And, and that's, you know, what I, what troubles me is, is that uh, I, I think we can have an honest uh, debate about uh, Confederate statues uh, when, when they're appropriate, where they're not, should they be taken down? Should they be, uh, left alone as, as a historical reminder and just, you know, sort of counterbalanced. For example, the, what used to be Robert E. Lee Park, when this occurred in Charlottesville, had been renamed Emancipation Park. Um, I think there, that's a totally legitimate debate to have, and that's, that's one of the things that uh, I think is, is so troubling is when these groups who are not based on any kind of legitimate uh, debate but, but on hate uh, hijack uh, something like that. Um, and you and I should mention, and as far as their, their motives, um, you know, years and years ago, you and I had, uh, had an experience where we went to counter protest, uh, a Klan march in Washington. Um, and, uh, it, it turned into something of a little bit of a riot. Um, and, uh, but, but at the end of the day, after, after all of this, um, um, you know, police presence and, and hundreds, I don't know, thousands. How, how many people do you think were there? I don't know. It was, it was, it seemed like a lot at the time. It seemed like, sure. seemed, seemed like millions. Yes. Yeah. Constitution Avenue lined and people in riot gear and all this sort of thing. Um, I think it was a total of six Klansmen showed up. Um, and their entire point, you know, looking back on that, uh, was to simply agitate and to bring about this other violence uh, that that occurred in the crowd um 
and I think sometimes that's, you know, by by jumping in and, and making the big counter protest, uh, you're giving these these groups the attention that they want. Uh, now, now this again, there's something to be said. This is a little different in that uh, this was a, a fairly large gathering as these things go. Um, again, most most clan marches and so forth are usually just like a half dozen uh, goofballs. Um, but this, and I think it's partially because of the internet, uh, people being able to connect like they couldn't before, uh, had a, an actual fairly, you know, I think they're numbering numbering the the the, the right wing folks in the, the several hundreds. I don't know whether they're in the thousands, but at least in several hundred. Um, and, and that's, that's a, a big difference, uh, that from, from what I think we've, we've seen in the past with these kind of things, but, but yeah, the, the, the motivation, uh, of these groups is always to, uh, to incite violence on the other side, uh, to make themselves look like the, the victims. Um, so uh, I guess just, you know, keep that in mind. I mean, do, do you agree with me on, on that? Well, I, I think kind of at a deeper level, I think there's a lot of anger. And I think there are a lot of people who are part of these these uh, race, these horrible racist movements who feel that they're somehow being cheated out of their part of the American dream. You know, I, and, and, and if you take a look at the, the trajectory of this country since the 1980s, yeah, OK, the economic pie is growing slowly, but it's not being shared equally. There's massive inequality. And so uh, there's huge groups of people all of a sudden see a life for themselves, especially a, a lot of younger guys saying, well, you know, life isn't going to be as good for me as it was for my dad and maybe for my grandfather and so forth. And they need to blame. They want to blame someone. But saying, well, you know, it's the inexorable advance of capitalism, that's, that's, that's not nearly as, as, as something you could grasp onto as saying, well, you know, it's the blacks, the Mexicans and the Jews who are taking our country away from us. And, and, and you know, I think you have those people who are so angry. And then I think you have the disgusting human beings like David Duke who are using that and, and channeling that, you know, David Duke. And I think also it's pretty disgusting that the president doesn't come out and just really take a stance against it. And he has people like, like Sebastian Gorka and, and Steve Bannon who are kind of, it's semi sort of on the fringes involved in this thing. And it just, it just makes me ill. Yeah. I'd, I'd expect, I mean, I, yeah, I, I would expect the president will come out with something stronger in the next couple of days. I'll be surprised if he doesn't, uh, or if not him, uh, uh, I think Sessions will be stepping up. Um, well, I, I hope you're right. I mean, and Sessions' statement was a little clearer, a little more uh, of a condemnation of of the hatred than than uh, Trump's was, at least. But still, no one's no one's uh, in the administration, as far as I know, has called it by its name. And I'm I'm going to wait for that. And I think a lot of people are waiting for that. You know, uh, before we move on to our next story, uh, we want to thank our second uh, advertiser for today, Jay uh, Casper. You know, yes. You know what I was doing four hours ago, Jay? I bet you were fast asleep. I was sleeping and I was sleeping really well too. Thanks to, well, a great Casper mattress, actually. You know, before I got my Casper mattress, I had this sad, wilting inner spring thing that I, I tried to fix it with this mattress topper and it kind of made me sink in like I was, you know, like like sleeping in, I don't know, pudding or something like that, or, or actually not sleeping in pudding. And that's a disgusting image. And that's how it felt, you know, but now all that's over because I've got a Casper mattress. And Jay, I understand that you have several family members who also have Casper mattresses. I do. I don't have a Casper mattress yet, but my uh, my mother and my sister uh, both do, and they swear by them, and they were very excited when they heard we were a sponsor. So, 
they wanted this uh, to for me to add that extra sort of shout out for them that uh, my mom and uh, my sister heartily endorse Casper and uh, if it's if if they say it's okay and you say it's okay, well then uh, that's, that's uh, something I'm going to be getting in the near future. And it's it's incredibly easy too. You don't have to go to the mattress store, and there's no you know these huge marks up markups for commissions and all that. And with so many other mattresses, it's just quick, easy, boom. You get a uh, to get this mattress and this cool little. It's amazing how they get this big mattress in this little box, you know, and obsessively engineered. And it really is a shockingly fair price. And one of the things I really love, I I, I admit before I got this. I had some doubts, but I did a lot of research and they, they have this combination of, of foams involved. So you get just that right amount of sink, just that right amount of bounce, and it's really breathable. And if you're a really hot sleeper like me, that's hugely important. And again, you should believe me, you should, you should believe Jay's, you know, family members and so forth, but you don't have to believe us because Casper has over 20,000 reviews, average of 4.8 stars. And plus, you get free shipping to the U.S. and Canada, 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. So, and, you know, also, it's designed, developed, and assembled in the United States, which is a nice thing, too, you know. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG. That's casper.com slash TPG. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, moving on, Jay. So, you know, uh, well, the story that we were originally going to talk right. about the, the, with, the, yeah. the story we always figured like, oh, are we on the brink yeah. of nuclear war? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that became our second story. Yeah, but, that, yeah. yeah, that kind of story that we hope future historians won't look back on is the genesis of the great U.S.-Korean-Chinese War of 2018, right? Um, I mean, as everyone knows, for years, North Korea has been working to become a nuclear power capable of hitting the mainland United States. And their progress toward this goal has been pretty rapid in the last few years. And, and most now most analysts actually believe that at some point before the next presidential election, North Korea is going to have the ability to successfully target the continental U.S. with a nuclear missile. And just like previous U.S. presidents, President Trump has vowed that this will not happen. And last week, in response to the latest North Korean missile test, UN Security Council, which includes Russia and China, unanimously approved a U.S. initiative that imposed major international sanctions against North Korea. And this, in turn, resulted in fierce denunciations from Pyongyang, including a threat to target the U.S. territory of Guam. Now, in the past, these sort of semi-lunatic public pronouncements of the North Korean um, propaganda machine They've been largely ignored by U.S. presidents, presumably under the theory, I guess, that if a crazy person is screaming at you, it's kind of counterproductive to scream back. But President well, Trump, I, I, go ahead. I say President Trump, he's taken a different approach, right? First, by threatening North Korea with fire and fury like the world has never seen, then responding to criticism of those comments by suggesting that maybe it was being too soft. And, and then most recently saying that the U.S. is locked and loaded. But but I should point out, despite the public bluster on both sides, there's no indication of U.S. military preparations for an imminent attack. And there are reports that U.S. and North Korean diplomats are engaged in back-channel talks. So, Jay, what do you make of all this? I mean, is this another Cuban missile crisis type moment, as some people are suggesting, or is the media blowing all this out of proportion? I don't think it's there yet, although I think it's it's a little funny. I would um, uh, point out the... Uh, as you said, sort of despite all the the, the bluster and talk, uh, there's back channel negotiations. Uh, I might I might say that perhaps because of that, there are are, are some negotiations. Um, 
the other the other thing that Trump said that I just want to put out there because I think it's just fantastic. It was <laughs> headline the other day was that there will be big big trouble <laughs> if they if the North Koreans move forward. Um, I I think we we are are not there at a crisis point yet. Um, I think also one of the reasons that we were uh, U.S. presidents were able to ignore some of those North Koreans' threats and saber rattling before is because there wasn't a belief that they could actually pull it off, uh, that they could have missiles that would actually work, that they would have uh, nuclear warheads that would actually work. Um, but we're to the point now where where they know that we know that they have that. Now, again, it, it would seem that they may even have the missile capacity to hit the continental U.S., although what it appears they do not have yet is the ability to, uh, to, to miniaturize a nuclear device small enough to fit on one of those intercontinental uh, missiles. Uh, but I think most uh, military analysts would agree that uh, they do have the technology and the ability to, to hit a place like Guam. Uh, so I, I think I think it's we're sort of a point where we have to take a little more seriously, uh, and we can't just shrug it off and and laugh. Oh, those those uh, that that crazy uh, uh, Kim family, um, you know. So I, I, I I'm I'm not I, I so I'm not going to condemn Trump uh, as as so many others have because I think maybe we're we're to the point of he needs to send that message, uh, both to the North Koreans uh, and to the Chinese. Uh, that's that. You know, look, hey, maybe this guy's a little bit crazy. Maybe, um, uh, maybe there there might actually be uh, something that happens here. And and uh, so, you know, I've heard that argument that Trump is doing a strategically savvy thing, and he's actually speaking more to Beijing than Pyongyang and all this kind of thing. And I think, do you know who we're talking about here? Donald Trump? Are we suggesting he's playing some game of three dimensional chess here, and as opposed oh, no, no, to just I'm, being I'm, Donald let's, Trump? Let me be clear, um, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, Trump necessarily thought ahead and said, oh, I'll, I will calibrate and calculate this message and I will try to look crazy uh, in order to uh, create some strategic uncertainty, uh, strategic ambiguity, uh, you know, that, that uh, we'll, we'll play in Beijing. And uh, no, I, I think, it, again, it was just Trump being Trump and he's saying sort of his stuff. Uh, but in this case, it happens, it happens to, to fit what, what needs to be said. And I'm not going to credit him with, um, uh, again, all that, that, that forethought, but that said, I don't think it's the wrong thing to say necessarily. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I've been thinking about and, and really thinking deeply about our options that we have here. And, and it seems to me, essentially when it, when we're looking at this situation, we have basically five options. Uh, first off, I, I usually I try to get in lists of four, but you like, you like lists. I do. I'm a list guy. Yeah. I think it's just my, my professor's sort of experience sort of thing. I don't know, but, but yeah, I, let me just kind of briefly go through them. Okay. Cause none of them are great, but option one, uh, option one, hope that sanctions hold and get them to come to the negotiating table and maybe give up their program. Okay. Yeah. Not going to happen. Maybe sanctions will hold Somewhat, but I don't think, I mean, China has too much of an interest in, you know, not preventing the collapse and so forth. And I think if. Sure. And, if, and I think the North Koreans are always happy to negotiate yeah. uh, while they continue to work on exactly. uh, more uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah. 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 Option two, a massive preventative strike before they can strike at us. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen because if it, if it does, we're talking millions dead and uh, that's just going to be, and, and you know, that could potentially get China involved and this, we could be talking something just horrific. Uh, option three, a limited strike 
that would maybe get North Korea to back down and show them that, hey, we're willing to use force. I think the problem, the problem with this option is that we'd, we'd assume that North Korea knows that this is a limited strike and not the start of a major strike. And so that's the kind of thing that can escalate pretty quickly. So again, we're still talking, even if a limited strike, tens of thousands dead, and, and you know, this is a horrible option. Uh, another option, option four, a decapitation strike, so-called, right, where we try to remove Kim Jong-un from power. And good luck with that. I mean, they've spent their entire, that whole regime is based on keeping keeping that family safe, and they've got bunkers and things and so forth, and the idea we'd be able to do any kind of surgical decapitation strike, that's the kind of thing for movies. I don't think that's really what could happen. Uh, the only, I think the only way that that kind of thing could happen would be if the Chinese decided that that was a smart move and they have a little more entree into that world and so forth, but I don't see that happening either. And option five, accepting that North Korea is eventually going to become a nuclear power capable of hitting the mainland United States, and coming to terms with that. And I think that's a crummy option, but I think that's probably how things are going to go. I mean, presidents have said, you know, this is this kind of whatever, not lying in the sand here, but, you know, this red line. But Right, this will not stand. It, it will stand. And there's nothing yeah. we can do about it that's not going to cause, uh, like I said, tens of thousands or even millions of, of deaths. And so we're going to just have to accept this. And, and, and I certainly don't like it. Nobody likes it. But if there's a, another more viable option, I certainly haven't heard or, or seen anything of it. Well, another uh, uh, option, and I'm not saying it's, it's an option that we have because it's not really our, our card to play, um, is in, in uh, you know, Trump ratcheting up some of the rhetoric uh, and maybe reaching not just the Chinese, but the folks who are around uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, and, and, you know, Kim is, is incredibly paranoid. All of, all of his family have been, and they routinely execute a bunch of their closest advisors and, and uncles and generals and uh, brothers even. Um, but I think he does that for a reason. I mean, just because he's paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get him. Um I think there there could be a a possibility. Uh, you know, look if if we work with with the Chinese um, uh, to get some sort of uh, internal regime change to happen. I mean, it would essentially you know a coup uh, supported by the Chinese. Now, again, there's a lot of <laughs> that goes into that, and it's not really our card to play. There's only so much we can do. Um, but when when um, I think some of his his uh, aides start thinking about uh, the the possibility that you know you could have an entire country vaporized, uh, and and things would not go well for them. They might start considering, well, what's the best deal we we can cut? Um, you know, I'll, I'll differ with you on the, uh, you know, can we accept a nuclear armed North Korea that can hit the U.S.? I think we just absolutely can't, uh, and even if that means military action, because uh, in in that case. It's a matter of taking the, the military action sooner rather than later. Um, and if, if, you know, it's also setting the precedent of, of what happens, uh, uh, you know, whatever happens in North Korea, the Iranians are watching. Yeah. So. Well, I just think that given the, given the fact that, a lot, that so much of this is old technology, that the know-how is out there, if a state wants to devote enough of its resources to doing this, it's going to be able to do this. And we unfortunately can't control it. And so I, I certainly hope you're right. And not that we're going to do some kind of preventative strike. I think the ideal outcome would be is if there would be some kind of internal thing or, or maybe Chinese assisted thing that would remove 
uh, Kim Jong-un from power. That would be, that would be great. But he is not just this crazy fat kid that people make him out to be, you know, he's a, no, seriously, he is a, he is a crafty, capable operator. I mean, think he was the youngest of Kim Jong-il's three kids. And he was, at the time, he was 27. He managed to consolidate power after his dad's death in 2011. This is a, this is a smart guy. This is a guy well, who What were knows, you doing at 27? Yeah, exactly. You know, so, <laughs> and, and I just think this is a really dangerous game that Donald Trump is playing. And I'd say, I hope he knows what he's doing, but I don't think he does. I hope the people around him know what they're doing. And thankfully, I think at least on his, on his foreign policy team, he's got some good, solid people like, for instance, McMaster, that a lot of the alt-right type folks are trying to push out. That's a whole nother kind of story, basically. But uh, let's, let's hope that uh, cooler heads prevail on both sides. All right, before we move on, our fine, we'd like to thank our final sponsor for today's show, Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price that's conveniently delivered right to your door with Dollar Shave Club. You know, I told you before how impressed I am by the shave I get using Dollar Shave Club, their blades and their Dr. Carver shave butter. But I should mention, I'm not the only one in my house who loves it. Recently, my wife told me that when she was cleaning out her bathroom, she found a stray package of non-Dollar Shave Club cartridges. And she said her immediate reaction, well, well, her immediate reaction was disappointment. (laughs) She said because she likes the Dollar Shave Club uh, cartridges so much more than these other overpriced ones. And, And I know, Jay, you also had a very positive reaction to Dollar Shave Club, right? I do. Best, best shave uh, ever had. And uh, you cannot beat the convenience uh, and, and uh, nor, nor the price. And that's something that, uh, again, I'm I'm a a pretty busy man, as you might expect, Mike, a a big shot like me. Um, But, uh, you know, running to the drugstore or to the uh, uh, big box store to just to pick up uh, razor blades that are, you know, overpriced. It just, it's like, it's like a punch in the gut to me. Um, <laughs> just, you know, one more thing I have to do and money that I shouldn't have to, uh, to spend. But uh, Dollar Shave Club uh, has really uh, solved that problem for me. And uh, I get uh, sort of the best quality blades uh, for a great price and delivered right to my home. Yeah. I mean, and even better for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razors is really nice kind of weighty. Uh, uh, I guess they call it a handle, right? With a true, but with a true, a tube maybe of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. It's a $15 value for only five bucks. And again, in that first month's box, you get this great weighty handle, a cassette with four cartridges and the tube of the shave butter. And after your first month, replacement cartridges will ship automatically at the regular price. No hidden fees, no commitments, cancel whenever you want, but you're not going to want to really honest. And you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay, moving on. Uh, you know, I, I want to turn back to domestic politics a little bit here. Um, This week, after Trump administration officials said that the president would not declare the opioid crisis a national emergency, well, he did just that. Uh, We should expect this by now. Um, Now, the declaration was in response to a report from the president's opioid commission, which early in the week recommended that a national emergency, in fact, be declared. And declaring a national emergency means a number of things. For instance, it makes FEMA money available to states. It allows public health officials to be redeployed to deal with the crisis. It eases the availability of opioid treatment drugs, and it allows Medicaid to pay for more treatment. And it would 
also presumably put more pressure on Congress to appropriate money to deal with a public health crisis that's it's killed more than 33,000 people. This is back in 2015. The numbers are even higher today and results in overall costs in terms of we're talking treatment, lost worker productivity and criminal justice system costs over $80 billion a year. So, so Jay, would you agree that this is a national emergency and President Trump did the right thing in declaring one? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, uh, you know, to me, I guess maybe the this is this is acting maybe a little bit more with like you know the pen and the phone uh, than going through Congress. And I could, I you know, I think we could quibble about the process of of. And I think you're right. What really needs to happen is, uh, you know, a, a more national policy. You know, congressional stepping in. Although again, not to diminish efforts that the states have made, or that the efforts that Congress has made already. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's important and, uh, it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, and, and I, and know, I, I thought, I, I thought you and I, I was pretty sure that you and I would agree on this part. And I wanted to also bring in something that I'm, I'm willing to bet we might not quite see as eye to eye on. And cause it's one comparison that's been made lately is between opioid manufacturers and, and big tobacco. And, and the argument essentially is that in both cases, companies engaged in well false advertising on a massive scale by misleading the public about the safety of their of their product and and now we're seeing a number of states that are attempting lawsuits against both manufacturers of opioids and distributors of the drugs who and they are for the distributors they're also arguing that they ignored clear evidence of health hazards because well because it was really profitable to do so. And, and right now there are five states bringing lawsuits, Ohio, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Missouri, and New Hampshire. And Kentucky actually settled with Purdue Pharma a few years ago on false advertising charges. They got $24 million for eight years, which is really a drop in the bucket, both in terms, you know, the cost of the crisis in Kentucky and in terms of the tens of billions of dollars that Purdue has earned from their drug Oxycontin, which is, which they knew which they knew wasn't a viable treatment for chronic pain and was killing thousands of people and, and ruining God even more lives than that. So Jay, I wanted to get your thoughts on these lawsuits. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, we've talked about this before when the Ohio suit came out. Uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about States going out there looking for a deep pocket. Uh, I, I'd have to, you know, look at the individual evidence of, of, or do we actually have false advertising and so forth? Or were these, Drugs that had a legitimate purpose, uh, and and they do, uh, being abused by doctors who were, you know, essentially there were pill mills uh, where they would prescribe whatever uh, to whomever for however long you needed, um, you know, that there was essentially criminal action uh, that that superseded, you know, the the sale of these drugs and they were they were being used improperly, um, you know, so I I'm I'm not crazy about that. The the other thing and all. Um, I was thinking about throwing this out uh, last week. Um, there's there's a report that was done, uh, and it was put together by uh, Express Scripts uh, of all folks, the you know pharmacy uh, company. And again, they don't manufacture pharmaceuticals, but they put out a lot of them. Um, and it's it's interesting in just discussing opioids um, and Medicaid, and and there is there is a a a link, and it's a little troubling. Um, that, uh, you know, with, with, uh, Medicaid expansion, you also had opioid expansion, uh, and that, that now it, it, opioids take up a, a large chunk. And I want to say, I don't have the report in front of me. Um, you know, it's, it's something like 25 
percent of no, not twenty five percent of the budget. Twenty five percent, I think, of Medicaid recipients have had an opioid prescription, uh, which seems is is higher than than the the average guy on the street with private insurance. Uh, and, and also, now again, that's not to say that some of those prescriptions are completely legitimate. Hey, I'm having my wisdom teeth out. Here's a uh, you know prescription for two uh, oxycontins or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think that's that's another piece to to look at is that uh, in in our rush to uh, make medical treatment available and without you know the right government oversight, this this can actually happen. But well, yeah, I digress. Your, I your question was about the uh, lawsuits, and and my thought is uh, you know again, I'm always as a lawyer, I'm always hesitant to. to comment on suits until I've seen the evidence. And I haven't really seen the evidence yet, and we'll see. But my sense is this is just government looking for a deep pocket, uh, taxation kind of by other means, and, and I'm, I'm typically not a fan of that. Well, I'd say if it's government looking for a deep pocket, and the pocket's made so deep by falsely advertising and resulting in the deaths oh, no, of thousands yeah, exactly. of people, if, I'm all if, for if, it. If that's, if that's the case. Yeah, I, I, think, I, don't, I think there's some I don't pretty know, strong... I that I have the facts on that yet. But. Well, when you have evidence like in, in some states like West Virginia, Ohio, of course, is one of the hardest hit states, West Virginia as well, where you have evidence of massive amounts of prescriptions being prescribed well in excess of what any reasonable person would think would be warranted. I mean, that's when the distributors yeah, but are is supposed that, but to. But does that go to the, the uh, manufacturer or to the doctor prescribing? Well, it might go. Well, it goes to the distributors and distributors are, are the groups are also that are being uh, brought into these lawsuits like, well, like Express Scripts, like CVS, like Walgreens, those sort of major distributors. There, there are many states that are arguing that they have a role in this. And well, in some cases, they actually do have a legal responsibility to note these these huge issues when there are, when it looks like that these drugs are Over being abused. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, I think it's pretty clear to and, me. And, and look, and if that's if that's the case, like I said, if if that evidence comes out there and we haven't seen both sides, um, you know, then then those parties ought to be held responsible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and but, I just think that this is. I mean, this is this is something to me that based on the evidence that we have, this reminds me a lot of the big tobacco thing. I want, I think one problem sort of that the states are going to encounter that they didn't with the big, with big tobacco was that the use of these products, there are, there are a lot more parties involved, you know, with, with the tobacco companies, it's directly from the tobacco companies to the consumers. But here you have the FDA intervening, you have the doctors intervening and so forth. And that kind of, that kind of distributes a lot of the blame. And so that can be a lot harder to make an individual case then and so forth. But uh, certainly what everyone can agree on is this is a national tragedy and we need to do something about it. Okay. Moving on, speaking of another tragedy or potential tragedy, uh, this week a draft of a climate report by scientists from 13 federal agencies was leaked to the media, uh, basically in fear that the Trump administration might reject or bury the report and not allow it to become part of the national climate assessment, which by law presidents are required to conduct every four years. Now, the report concludes that there is a clear connection between human activity and climate change, a connection that, you know, a number of people in the Trump administration, including the president himself at times, have questioned. Uh, more specifically, the report concludes that it is extremely likely that over half of the global mean temperature increase since 1951 can be linked to human influence. Now, the National Academy of Sciences has signed off on the report, and so the next step is the approval of the report by 13 agencies, including 
the EPA, which is headed by climate change skeptic Scott Pruitt, who previous to becoming the agency's administrator, of course, sued the EPA multiple times as attorney general of Oklahoma. Uh, so, Jay, how do you feel about uh, the leak and, and what do you think about the report's findings? Oh, I guess. I mean, you can't really see me, the the big yawn here that I'm I'm giving uh, over the air, but um, this is sort of the same same as always, uh, you know, okay, let's, if they've got the report, let's put it through the right channels and have it vetted and, um, you know, see, see what, uh, see what they say and they'll put out conclusions and other folks can, uh, take that data and, uh, uh, you know, I guess test it against, uh, against, you know, but I mean, or, I mean, or, or, or run the same tests and see if they get the same answers. I mean, about, about so, the leak you know, itself, look, I'm, I'm always in favor of, of science. Uh, if it's conducted uh, properly, the, the whole idea of the, the leak. Uh, look, this is this is. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say the deep state because that always sounds a little silly and, and probably more sinister than it needs to. Um, but you know, this is this is federal officials who are trying to stick it to Trump and score political points uh, by by doing the leak. And well, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's one way to look at it for what it is. And, and let's. Uh, I I don't. I, well, to I mean, me, what, there's nothing, there's nothing. Well, one way, one way to look at it so. is federal officials trying to stick it to Trump. Another way to look at it is the legitimate fear that the Trump administration would in fact bury this. And so they wanted to get it out there before that had a chance to happen. And I think that's, that, that's a, that's an equally reasonable way of looking at it. And maybe there's a combination of both. And maybe a lot of these federal officials want to stick it to Trump, especially these scientists and these agencies, because they have good reason to believe based on multiple public statements, not just by the EPA director, but by the president himself using the words hoax multiple times that their research is not going to be taken seriously by the administration. Well, let's, uh, let's wait and see. Wouldn't it be much more damning though, if you had uh, prepared all this and then submitted it and it was buried and then you come out and say, Here's here's what we actually submitted, and it was covered up. And uh, uh, I'm resigning in protest. I guess resigning in protest might make it a little more. But then then your concern is who gets who do you get replaced by? You know, I mean, uh, already there's been an effort by the Trump administration to put as many people as possible in top positions who are I think they would probably call it more well attuned to the needs of industry or something like that, which well, is more I like mean, chills. We, for we the, could do a whole uh, show on some of this. The EPA um, uh, science vetting and the uh, Obama's uh, created the office of. Uh, was it called the Office of Scientific Accountability or, or something like that? Um, we'll we'll do a follow up on that. I'll uh, I'll pull together my research. But um, I, well, look, it's it's the president's prerogative to put in those places who whom he thinks. And in, in the past, these positions uh, have been filled by folks who are uh, certainly sponsored and, and in many cases allied with uh, the the left and the uh, the environmentalist movement. Um, fair enough, but uh, let's let's call it for what it is. And um, again, there's always the the sense that if you're a scientist uh, in industry, that uh, that's not real science. And uh, I would, having having worked in the private sector, I'd say that uh, typically uh, uh, there are some pretty high standards in the, in the public in the private sector uh, uh, versus uh, the public sector. And I, I think that's I know public sector people certainly don't look at it that way. We'll get all kinds of uh, anger about that, but um, 
Well, I think one you big look, difference I mean, the, the is the numbers are what they are, and the the data is what it is. That's right. And uh, let's uh, let's take a look at it. I don't know. I guess I have the radical idea that if you're in charge of something called the Environmental Protection Agency, that you should have a bias toward environmental protection. But uh, hey, that's just me. No, no, no. Crazy. You should you should have a bias towards uh, coming up with the the right answer uh, to to correct science. Now, whether you know, I don't think there's a right answer. I mean, I think that there are there are clearly interests that need to be balanced. I I certainly will admit that. You know, that uh, uh, doing the things that we need to do to protect global climate catastrophe, and I use those words very, you know, very uh, uh, specifically, is will require some short-term sacrifice, some serious short-term sacrifice. That's the trade-off. And what I want to see is an honest exchange of ideas between an environmental protection agency that is focused on that and maybe then, you know, a commerce secretary who's focused on other things. But when you pollute the whole process, when your supposed uh, advocate for the environment is actually more an advocate for oil companies like Scott Pruitt is. And so I, I think it's one of the most right up there with Jeff Sessions as attorney general, Scott Pruitt as EPA, uh, as EPA administrator. It's just, a, just ongoing disaster for, for the environment. And I think the future of, you know, the future of humanity. So anyway, it, it'll be fine. Yeah, you think so, and I hope you're right, well, but I, I, it's I, easy to say that. Whistle past the graveyard. Uh, if uh, Kim Jong-un uh, nukes Guam next week, uh, people will not be as concerned about global warming and will focus on some bigger, more real uh, threats. Well, I think it's a very real threat and a much bigger threat. But uh, anyway, again, as I said a bunch of times, I hope you're right. I wish I could share your optimism, but I just don't. Okay, moving on, it is time for What We're Reading, where we step back from the crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about some of these other things that might not be in the news, maybe a little more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're reading, listening to, or watching. And uh, I'm going to start off this week, Jay. I am recommending a new, new-ish, I guess, politics blog slash Facebook page called The Political Abstract. Uh, it's written by Dan Summers, who actually happens to be a politics guy's listener. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Dan's a political direct marketer from northern New Jersey, where he's worked for the last 10 years. And he tells me he's always been a political enthusiast and amateur prognosticator. And so right around the time of the presidential election, he started the Political Abstract Facebook page. And it's dedicated to providing detailed analysis and encouraging thought-provoking political discussion and civil discourse across the political spectrum. And I thought, hey, that's exactly the sort of thing we try to do here on The Politics Guys. So I'd recommend everyone check it out. And you can do so by going to facebook.com slash political abstract. And there's also a political abstract page on medium at medium.com at polyabstract. So Jay, what's your recommendation for this week? Well, you know, I always, I always go into the, the week, uh, weekend, uh, thinking, okay, I've got something uh, good and different, uh, that, that is not just, uh, from the wall street journal Saturday, uh, review page, but then something comes out and it's just so damn good. Uh, that I have to I have to <laughs> focus on that. And this week, uh, there is a um, uh, it's in the review section and art, a, a piece by uh, Dr. Mark Lilla, who is a uh, professor at Columbia uh, about uh, the liberal crack up. And uh, really, just, he has a book out. Uh, the book well, the book isn't out yet. This is an essay adapted from the book. Uh, but the idea that uh, identity pro uh, identity politics has uh, so kind of polluted the left uh, that they they can't reach any consensus with with uh, the rest of the country anymore. And it, it's even, uh, you know, 
again cracking up the the uh, the coalition that uh, uh, the the left has built. And uh, I think he just he makes some some fantastic points. And again, this is a a liberal certainly writing this. Um, but but a couple of things I think in in particular are are and it struck me even more so after than the events of of uh, yesterday in Charlottesville. Uh, but I just want to read a, a quick section. He says, as a teacher, I'm increasingly struck by a difference between my conservative and progressive students. Contrary to the stereotype, the conservatives are far more likely to connect their engagements to a set of political ideas and principles. Young people on the left are much more incl inclined to say that they are engaged in politics as an X, meaning as whatever group they are choosing to represent, concerned about other Xs and those issues touching on Xness, and they are less and less comfortable with debate. Uh, and he, and he, he draws from this that when we start getting into this, uh, look, I approach this issue as, as an X, um, uh, as a African-American, as a woman, as a Hispanic, as a whatever you want to call yourself as a transgendered person, you lose the ability uh, to, to reach out to a broader audience. You necessarily uh, exclude them from the, the conversation, uh, and that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, why we can't talk to each other and we sort of talk past each other. Um, so I, I, I recommend this. And again, this is a, a piece written by someone who is avowedly a, a liberal um, uh, and sort of trying to get back to, uh, you know, what it, what it used to be. <laughs> sort of kind of his, his point is a little bit, well, it used to be about the class warfare. Uh, <laughs> we just, you know, sort of do more than that, do more with that. Um, which again, I'm against class warfare, but uh, there is... Again, the idea of of reaching out to uh, the the common uh, Americanness uh, in all of this, rather than trying to isolate everyone into their own uh, race, gender, uh, ethnicity bubble. Right, and something, of course, we talked about earlier in the show for on, on the side of the right, right, with the uh, the people who approach issues as I am an aggrieved, uh, I am an aggrieved white man right. whose oh, exactly. country is and being that's, taken that's, away from uh, you. Him. Know, uh, uh, and like yeah, the the whole thing again. If that the idea is if you're if you're coming and saying, um, look, this angers me as a white person or as a black, that's that's the problem. Uh, we should be looking at this as this is something that uh, upsets me as an American. Sure. Yeah. Identity politics taken to an incredible extreme. And you mentioned social media earlier, certainly a big part of it. And it is it is absolutely a, a hugely distressing problem. So sounds like a great article. I'm actually looking forward to reading it myself. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you check out today's sponsors, Blue Bottle Coffee, for $10 off your first coffee subscription. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. Casper, where Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG. And Dollar Shave Club, where new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with the tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. You know, listener support is a huge help to us and greatly appreciated. If you're interested in joining our awesome group of Politics Guys supporters. You can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending a single thing, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass it along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. And hey, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can email us at mail at politicsguys.com and our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys.
Executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.